All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Jake Dunlap Show. I am very excited. Uh, I have with me one somebody who I've known for a while now. For I've known for at least seven, six, seven years now. He has uh, grown a, a, what I consider to be an amazing culture organization, a great company. He has uh, he's done a lot of different things in his life. He's went from being an engineer to a master's from Harvard, MBA. He's been a product manager. He was also known as Funky Cold, okay, at one point in his life. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking about Mr. Manny Medina, CEO of Outreach. Manny, it is a very great pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me, Jake. This is, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I didn't, I, you didn't know I was going to pull that Funky Cold reference out, that is that You had to dig for that one. That one is I not, did have to dig. It's not out there. I'm going to have you do it. I'm going to have you do a little tone loc later. Uh, so, so as, as all of you know, we, we start by going back. And, and what we find is that we learn the most from our own experiences and people's experiences. And I think today is going to certainly be no different. So Manny, I want to go back to, you were born in Ecuador. I was, yeah. Correct? Yeah. I was. And, and you grew up, from what I, could, I understand, um, shrimp farm, stepmother's shrimp farm is what I had pulled out. Yeah, was a big, big part of your summers and growing up. And so, you know, what I want to do is, is maybe just understand, you know, for you, like, let's say like your first formative years. So maybe like, you know, pre pre high school, right? Your mother was Russian. You're living in Ecuador. Both your parents are engineers, right? So what were some of your formative years like? You know, what was it like for a lot of us, you know, who maybe had a different experience? What was, What were those years like for you growing up in Ecuador with this, you know, very high achieving household as well, too? Yeah, so um, I grew up in, in 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 Guayaquil. Guayaquil is not the capital of Ecuador, but it is the largest city. It's kind of like New York in the city. And Guayaquil is a port, and is it's a port, which means that you know all the big ships that come into Ecuador come into Guayaquil, and everything gets shipped out or shipped in. So the city traffic is constantly, you know, jam locked with you know uh, trucks bringing in goods or taking out goods. And it's loud. That's the one thing I remember from growing up. It's just loud and it's hot all the time. And to even speak, you have to speak two, three decibels above <laughs> everybody else to just be heard. Um, so I grew up in this cacophony of like of a city. Um, and during the summers, um, my, uh, I, I, my, my dad is stretched very much uh, economically. He worked two jobs. He worked at, at, a, at a designing a, a hydroelectric plant and building it in, in the mornings. In the nights, he would give classes at the university. So he worked, you know, to, he worked very hard to send me to, to this German school um, that I went to. And during the summers, usually my, 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 uh, my, 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 the people who go with me, my classmates, you know, a lot of them will go to Germany because their parents had enough money to send them to Germany. My parents spend all their money just sending me to school. So my summers were about, you know, going somewhere else to make myself busy and keep myself, you know, useful. So they shipped me out to this beach town where my, uh, my stepmom's uh, sister had a, a shrimp farm. And the shrimp farms, I, I don't know if you, you've seen the shrimp farms, but they're, they're, um, there's these large pools that are about the size of football fields that are dug into the dirt full of salt water with shrimp in it. You have to feed the shrimp and sort of, you know, go around. Um, and, and, and then eventually you harvest the shrimp and it's very hard work because it's really hot 
so the, heat, the sun is beating down on you. And you can only harvest shrimp at night when it's cool. So you have to wait until the end of the day to, um, to, for the temperature to cool down. And then you drain the water out and you have these baskets where you take the shrimp and you put them in trucks and it ships them out to the, uh, the packing station where all the, where all the shrimps are kept. So that, that was my childhood. And I never had dreams or aspirations of a living Ecuador or anything else outside of what was in my immediate purview. So that I had an aha moment. Um, I forget exactly if it was the second or, or, or last year of high school where I was like, this can be it. This can be what is to the world, right? Like a lot of my classmates, um, you know, wanted to go to the university and work a normal job in Ecuador. And then, you know, a normal, not a normal job, like a, you know, middle-class job yeah. when you work for IBM or, or an, an international company and, you know, become a middle manager and you have a second home and, you know, a couple cars and take vacations regularly. And I just like, I just forecasted that future. And I was like, I can't do that for a living. I will, I will die if I do that. I can't, I can't remember. Was, was there something that happened? You know, was there, was there some <clears throat> event, like when you think about you growing up, so, you know, you're going out, you're, wor- you're busting your ass every summer. Um, you know, are you working during school as well too? You're working like during the school year? Uh, no, I wasn't working during the school year, but I was busting my ass during the summer. And and, and all I remember it was that I, I, you know, I got to get out of here. <laughs> this is, this is for the birds. Like, this is not like, you know, I can't imagine growing up and like owning this, but let's say that I was massively successful and I get to own my own shrimp farm. <laughs> I was like, that is not a life that I want to lead. Is and, that what it was? What did you feel like you were getting put on that path? Cause you had parents who were engineers, right? I mean, they were successful. Your dad teaches at university. Did you feel like there was a point where, where, People were saying that to you. You're getting put into that path. That's a, that's it. So you have a dichotomy in which you either work for the government or for some kind of large organization, or you own some kind of like you know middle of the road business, like nothing big, nothing to scale, but something small in cottage that sort of feeds you know the country, or or that's something relatively small. There was no nothing big and aspirational to go for, and I just couldn't see myself in that future in which like I know either way I took, my outcome was capped. You know, I mean, there is almost so much shrimp you can produce. You know, I mean, there is almost, you know, there is almost all, you know, only so many things that you can build within Ecuador. Like Ecuador is such a small country. There's no private capital. And, you know, a lot of your future depends on that, what family you're born into. And I was born into the wrong everything, right? Like I was born into a socialist family. My grandfather was the head of the commun- was, you know, one of very high up in the communist party. I spent all my worker days, I think it's May 1st. I don't know when the rest of the world celebrates it, but it's May 1st, uh, this big parade. And then I go to college and, um, you know, I learn how to protest every time gas prices go up or, you know, bus fares go up or, you know, taxes goes or something. So I got really good at burning tires. I got really good at protesting. <laughs> I got really good at throwing, you know, red paint at the American embassy. Like I, you know, I got really good at those things, at protesting, but I, I didn't feel like I was getting good at building. You see what I mean? Like I, I and, and even when, and, and so I forget exactly where I was when this aha moment happened to me in that, in that, you know, I didn't see my outcome being very big and my ambition yeah. was of a, a significantly larger size than what the country allowed me to have yeah and so so, this, so i mean that makes sense i mean that so you kind of have it and then and then you do go to college though right so then you do you, you go to college is this in ecuador so that's when i go to college yeah. in ecuador yeah and and I, and and, uh, and i'm in college and i'm still thinking i'm still thinking about it. so backtracking a little bit I go to a German school and my whole plan was to leave the country to go to study in Germany. And I was going to get a scholarship to Eastern Germany because it was paid by, you know, the communist party. 
And then Eastern Germany stops being a country on my senior year in high school. And then that whole, it's kind of like you have a, you have a, you, you know, when you make your own story, you have a whole lie. You're lining yourself to this outcome. And then oh, that outcome is chopped. Yeah. All of a sudden that outcome doesn't exist anymore. And I have to like pivot to something else. So I decided, you know, I, you know, I got no option, but I got a, the, the school in, for engineering in my city. And, and when I took programming in my second year there is when the world went boom. There's so much you can do with software that this is the ticket. And I didn't grow up with it. So this is why, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I consider myself a late bloomer. I didn't grow up with software. I didn't grow up with computers. I, you know, I, I had to. Yeah, this is to, like early nineties. I mean, I don't think anybody, you know, was. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But yeah. you know, a lot of people had the Commodores. You know, you, you yeah, the Commodore. There you go. Atari computer, the computer. <laughs> I got nothing. Like I didn't have video games. I didn't have anything. Like I, I knew how to peel shrimp and how to harvest shrimp. But like that was the extent of my abilities. So why engineering, Manny? Like I think it's interesting. So, I, my, my parents didn't give me a path. So I said my dad got softer as he got older, and my my, my siblings, <laughs> you know, got got more of like you know go do what fills your heart kind of messaging. I got you know. I got the, uh, your mom is an engineer, your, um, you know, your dad is an engineer, you're going to be an engineer. Right. So I, I sort of picked sort of like the most middle of the road thing that had the most optionality that was computer engineering because I didn't have to commit to anything if you're a computer engineering. So you take the core engineering classes while you figure stuff out. And then that's when, you know, I took my first programming class and, and, and everything kind of like shifted. And I realized that, you know, not only, even though I wasn't very good at it, I saw the potential for it. And that's when I realized that you, you can, you can, you can, you know, any process in the world that you can imagine, you can write it in like, you know, like, like, you know, like a straight up yeah. writing. And that, that, that just blew my mind. And, and that's when, that's when everything sort of came together that, you know, I'm in the wrong place, you know, to fulfill my dreams. Like I, I just, I, I need to, I need to figure out, I need to go to a bigger place where, where I come from, my heritage, you know, doesn't matter where yeah. you know, everybody sort of like can, can do anything they want. And um, around that time, when I figured I wasn't going to go to Germany, uh, I started taking English lessons. And I, you know, I had a, a friend who had cable TV. I started hanging out with his friend and I would go and watch a lot of US TV to just soak in. While language. you're going to college? So actually, going to yeah, college. we kind of, I guess we kind of moved past it. Cause again, you go to a German school, so you're fluent in German, yeah. right? You're speaking Spanish at home. Were you not, was English not really in your, purview yeah. until then no i didn't learn english until i was 20 wow okay uh and mostly because i had to because i that was that was that was that first I, you I, learn yeah. numbers though i love that first at least you you learn like programming language for like a little bit first right 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 and, right, then, right, right, and then you're like okay english is which is probably actually for most kids out there like probably the right order of operations as we like look forward in our society Absolutely. Um, so okay so that okay this is this is great man so then all right so you decide okay i need to learn english Um, and then so, so tell me a little bit about that journey. Um, so, so learning English was, was relatively difficult because in Ecuador, nobody, like, it's just not a a thing you do. Um, but I, I just didn't see a future in, in which I didn't end up in the U S somehow. Um, and you know, even, even as a, again, my outcome of my career path was capped in Ecuador because the best I could hope for was to support, to, you know, to, to do deployments or be a support person for IBM, Microsoft, Oracle, or any of those SAP. Yeah. And, and that was it. It's a good, again, good living, you know, get a house on the, on the beach and a house at home and, you know, all the good things, but it's not, 
you know, you didn't invent anything new. You didn't change the world in any material way. And, and that, do you and remember so- visualizing anything, Manny? Do you remember like, was there, cause again, like you, you, you had you been to the United States at this point? Uh, when I was very little, but I, I no, not for that. Very little. So not really. And then again, Germany, right? Again, you're in this German school. So that, that kind of, was there anything you kind of visualized? So if I, if I asked you about then, like, what was your view? You're like, okay, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to live in America. Like, what did that mean? Cause we're talking like mid nineties right about now, like yeah, mid, yeah, yeah. early mid nineties. Yep. What did that mean for you? What did that mean for you in terms of that? What would that like, what was it? I mean, obviously I'm like, I'm trying to think like what, there's lots, lots of shows. Like, cause I, I was kind of, you know, in my like early high school years at some of this time too, right? Like I don't know if Saved by the Bells yet, yet or something like that. Or Yeah, like, no. So imagine every show had to be translated. So I got every show that you're watching, I got it like two to three to five years after you saw it. Right, so right. What was in syndication. In, in my time was Knight Rider. Yes. Um, and I was, as I was leaving, you know, Baywatch became a thing. Right. So my Knight Rider was something I locked on. I'm like, who built this car? Who can do this thing? Only in America, yeah. you can go and like make a car that talks. Only David Hasselhoff. Exactly. Only David Hasselhoff. Like, you know, how can I be him? I, I didn't well, want to be David Hasselhoff. I want to be the dude who, who made the car so I can make 10 more cars and sell it to a lot of people. <laughs> Do you remember having that moment of like, wow, like this is what it'll be like? Like Knight Rider in particular, like that kit, yeah. kit right? Yeah. Kits, yeah. Exactly. Like the fact that you can you pull your car from your watch and, and the car talks back. And I'm and I'm and I'm thinking like all this is possible. Like all this is, yeah. you know, I'm I'm seeing it. Somebody has conceptualized it, and all this is possible for me. And and I'm just and I, I and, and that it, for me it was a little bit of both, right? It's the anxiety that I can do it here, and that it's possible, and somebody else is going to do it. It's not going to be me. So like you know, I had years of anxiety like that. I was like, how do I get to that you know outcome? I love it. So yeah. then you do get that chance, right? So then Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. Okay. So you get an opportunity. So how did you, one, like, how did you find out about Stevens Institute of Technology? Like you, you start to make these decisions and then like, what actually takes you to that, to move to New Jersey? So I was very, um, you know, I didn't know anything about the college ranking system I, or, or anything of that nature. So I very literally, um, Stevens happened to be a place where the current president of Ecuador had gone to school. Mm. And my professor of, of programming had gone to school too. So there I have two strong data points that if, if everything goes to shit, I can always come back and those two can be alone. <laughs> right, right. And I can always rely on them to give me a job. So I can, I can, that's a school that I can, I can, you know, it's a little bit of a safety measure for me. That's great. Well, that's, that's awesome. And then you, like, what is that move like for you? Like, so you've been here your whole life, right? Your parents are there, family's there you know, what was that conversation like? What was the, like, you know, the transition like for you, you know, coming to, again, never been, never been to New Jersey, let alone most of the U S like, what was that experience like for you, for you and your family when you were making that, that decision? Cause you had to drive an ambition. I'm sure at this point they see that. They were very concerned. <laughs> um, you know, my my first couple of years of my last year of high school and my first couple of years of college were not, were not I was not like the top of the class student. They were really hard. And, you know, I kind of started partying a lot. That's why I realized that, I, you know, I have a car and a little bit of money. Um, and the drinking age in Ecuador is a lot, you know, a lot lower than here. So I I, I, I made good friends who were a lot of fun and sure. I spent a lot, a lot of time hanging out. 
Um, so they were extrapolating that. They were like, you're going to go to the U.S. and just kind of like die partying. <laughs> you know, because because the images that you have from the U.S. are like, you know, at this point it's Baywatch, right? You got a yeah. job running around the beach and partying. <laughs> I love that. Or like, or like Miami Vice. That was big then too. Oh, yes. And Miami Vice was nothing but a big party in the shootout. And, uh, and they were thinking, you go to the U.S. and you're going to wear, you know, a blazer and, and be in parties and shootouts all the time. Like, that's your destiny. Oh, my gosh. I, I love it. So, well, let me ask you that. Actually, before before we get into Stevenson. So you talked about kind of in, in high school and then kind of partying. Then there, there's at what point in college then for you were you like, this is it, like computer engineer? Like, because it sounds like there's a point also in college, even in Ecuador, where you kind of said, I got to get this together. Like, do you remember what that was like for you whenever you had kind of those moments of like, I need to step up. I need to do something different. Yeah. So, you know, it it was, it was when I, um, it was around the time that I I took that. So my last year in college is when, you know, programming was, was incredibly exciting, but it was also hard. Um, And at that point, all the classes got harder on engineering. And this is usually the time. So in Ecuador, there is, at my in my time, it has changed since then. But there was only two, one or two core universities, and you either graduated or you fail. And the graduation rate was very small, and it was a combination of both. Like you know, um, the uh, the because the poverty rate is so high, the people who even got scholarships didn't have the support system to maintain themselves. Right. So they dropped out yeah. very quickly. So the classes were incredibly hard. The funnel was getting narrower, and you either got serious about it and you killed it, or you got kicked out. So I was becoming into the shoot, if you would, very fast. But the, the, usually what pulls you through is, is, a, is a vision of a job at the end of that that is, you know, very good, right? And very yeah. high paying. And I just didn't have that vision. So I became into this crisis of like, I don't want to stay here because I have, I, you know, you know, the job that awaits me is not a very exciting life. And you know, I'm, this is about to get really, really difficult. So that's when I, I really hustled. And I, you know, I asked my dad to, you know, to pay for college in, in the U.S., which was a huge stretch for him. And I told him, look, uh, the moment I show up, I'm going to try to get a job. And Stevens had a co-op program where I can take every semester off. And I could, you know, use that to help out a little bit. And I just begged Byron Steele to just get out. Like, I had to get out. And that was the right time. If I were to stay one more year here, I was either going to fail <laughs> or, or make it. And if I made it, you know, the outcome of that wasn't great either. So I had to leave. So um, my dad sat me down and he said, look, we're going to do it. But you better don't fuck up. <laughs> and you better get out in two years. But you, that's right. all I have for you is two years. So you have to go in and out in two years. So I think it took me three because I worked, you know, right. like every second, every second semester. Um, but I was maniacally about like, I have to get out and I have to get a, a reasonable paying job so I can you know pay back school and like make my family proud. So I, I, I was trying the very, you know, narrow path of just like shooting through, <laughs> shooting through university. And this is why, like, it was really interesting and, and not to jump forward, but it's really interesting because I, I feel like if I had more time to meander, I would have gotten a job But some of the, you know, between 99 and 2002 is when the, is when the internet really started blowing, blowing up, up, man, blowing right? up. And, and like, I am super concerned about making my family proud that I passed on opportunities that could have been meaningful to me. Like I remember coming out of, you know, later grad school, I read a paper about, by one Larry Page and Sergey Grin about, you know, the value of, of backlinking. And I was like, this is crazy. 
but you know, and there's nothing I can do about it. Like this is a, a new company that is just starting with its two PhD students that you know have written this interesting paper that could change the way search works. But you know, I don't have like my if I go tell that to my parents, they will kill me. You know, <laughs> like they will not. <laughs> so like I have to take regular jobs that I can explain back to this. So I took a job in banking. I took like I took all this like you know make make your father proud kind of job. Yeah, you know, instead of like going for it now. That, that, it's hard to decompose your life from those moments because if I would have been an engineer at Google, I wouldn't be here talking to you, right? That's I, right. I would be rich, but for different reasons. Um, but I had to take all those hard knocks to navigate sort of like, you know, what got me here through all those, all those jobs. Yeah, and then, and then, I mean, and then you get an opportunity to go to Penn, right? Which, I mean, I mean, then that, that kind of has got to be like a, a kind of next, next level. So instead of going and working full-time, you go get your MS in computer science at right. Penn. Correct. Um, and then when I do that, that's when it really, that's when my eyes were blown open. Cause like right now, Penn was paid for my job at Bell Atlantic, who later became Verizon Communications. And that's when I had time to explore. That's when I had time to mingle with, you know, the people at the Wharton School who were doing business. That's when I realized that the world is huge. <laughs> and, right. and like, and it's all here. And I can, and anybody can be anybody. And that's when I realized that, it, like, you know, First of all, let's, let's start from the very end. I, that's when I realized my English was insufficient. So <laughs> right. I actually had to step back and I, and, I, and I read the Wall Street Journal every day and I marked five words that I didn't know from the paper and I would force myself to use it. So I, I filled that I, like, a, like a notebook like this full of English words right. that, that would make me more conversant, that would make me better on email, that would make me more professional in the communication. Then I read this book called um, Elements of Style by William Strunk. Okay. which is the seminal book on, on, on writing English. And I just memorized the whole thing, like front to cover, back to front, just so that I could be sound professional, right? Like as it is, like, you know, with an accent of somebody that, that's, you know, that sounds like a, like a day laborer, I'm not going to go anywhere in this country. Like I need to like enrich my vocabulary and get my, my writing skills up to a level where I sound a professional. So I actually took time to do that so that, so that I can move forward. Um, and then I just started hanging out with like, you know, people with more ambition than me, people who could think bigger than me. And that, and that sort of created this pool of like, you know, oh my God, there's this possibility and there's that possibility and there's that possibility. And that's really what drove me. You know, I just glom into, like, that's when I felt like, you know, I really ate like everything America had to offer. Like I, you know, every day, you know, wholesale. Penn was that seminal moment for me. And what happened? So tell me about the Civic House. You founded a, a group called the Civic House. So I, I needed to, I needed to be part of founding something, you know, and Even the back then, was, you're like, I still need something that's not going to be my thing. Exactly. No. So like there was yeah. this small group that it was advertised. So like they needed some techie to like help out with a website. And I was pretty good at Pearl. And I, you know, I got some free time because my, my master was ending, winding down. And I'm like, I need to be part of something that is not, you know, middle of the road. Like, how am I ever going to be an entrepreneur if I don't try new stuff? So like that was my way of associating with you know somebody else that that is founding something. Now this was a this was a sort of like a nonprofit within a school that was doing a lot of you know community outreach and stuff. And and, and again that helped me get out of my bubble. Like I needed to get out of my technical bubble of like you know a comfy paying job and, and right. work with somebody that is starting something from scratch. And that you know I always being attracted to that, but I never had the uh, the, the sort of the impetus to go and do it. So, so, okay. So this is a chance for you to go be a, be a part of this. And then, so, so what I, what I can see or at least learn is basically, so then you leave Penn, you do some other jobs and then you go to Harvard. Is that the career? What did you do in between Penn and Harvard? Um, 
So I had a, I had a, uh, my, my son came to my life very early on. I had my, my first son at the age of 21 and I needed to, I needed, I felt like I needed to settle down a little bit, but at the same time, I wasn't settled in my, in my ambitions. So I decided to take a job where I could buy a house and, and, and sort of took a, a, a normal paying job when I figure out my next move. So I went to, I went to Citigroup and I mean, to be frank, I mean, this is so dumb nowadays, but it's, it, it, I took the offer because they had a lower, they will offer me a lower mortgage rate than if I were to get it commercially. So they were like two points lower. So right. I, I took the job so that I could have a lower rate on my house that I was buying. It was my first house in the US. That was a big deal. Yeah, oh, I'm I mean, sure, man. I'm an immigrant. Like my dad is very proud of me. I was going to say, your dad is just like, be, we cannot stop talking about Exactly. Man. It's like my son in the U.S. bought a house. Like that's, that's a big, like that's, the, I, that's the only reason I did it. <laughs> dad, dad proud and couple that with uh, an interest rate. So, so, and, and then, so you take this job at Citigroup and, you know, again, I have to imagine, you know, again, like another path forward, right? Even though it's maybe a little different than what you're doing. And then you get an opportunity to go get a Harvard MBA. And so what was, but tell me about like what was that thought process like? Look, you you already you've been through a lot of school, and then you go get an MS at Penn, right? Which yeah. is no small no small feat, right? And or sorry, uh, master CS MCS in at Penn, and then you're like, oh, you know what? Eh, I want I want like a, a a smaller challenge. I'm gonna get my MBA at Harvard, right? When I think of like. The, the amount of schooling that you've done in this like period, like what, what was it for you that you're like, this is, this is what I should do next. And, and I know sometimes at that age, you're like, I, uh, like maybe I knew what it was, but like, what was it about getting a Harvard MBA or, or, or maybe how did you get that opportunity or what kind of came to you as why that would be the next step? So this, this was a seminal moment, actually. This was a, a, a one meeting that I had that, um, so here I'm at Cedar Group. And Citigroup group undervalues technology tremendously. So here I am um, doing the rounds and the jobs and they don't care that, I, that, that I'm, I'm good with, with computers and systems. So now I, I'm in this predicament. Uh, all of a sudden they announce a, a, an e-business group. Everybody was announcing e-business groups back in the, in the 2001s, right? Like hardness, the internet, like e-banking was becoming a thing. So I immediately apply to work in this e-business group. And I interview with a woman who was named the, the, the head of the e-business group. So I show up to the interview and I think I killed it. Like I was pretty much, I pretty <laughs> sure I killed it. Yeah. And, and then I call, I get called back by the same woman who interviewed, who told me right there, who told me in person, which I really appreciated, that, um, that I wasn't getting the job. And I was crestfallen. And, and we sort of like got talking and I told her how excited I was. And she's like, look, I, I know you're excited. Like, I know you, you, you're going to do great things, but I, this job is just, I don't think it's, it's good for you. But, and then she stopped and she said, um, but I want to help you. And I, and I, I was like so mad. I'm like, I don't know how can you help me? And she said, well, what, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I, well, I, I don't know, but I think I, you know, at this point, I think I need some kind of business experience and I don't know what to do about it. And she is like, well, I went to HBS and that changed my life. Maybe you should do the same. And I'm like, I can never get into Harvard. Like, you know, everybody yeah. who goes to Harvard has gone to good schools. And I went to like mediocre school and like, you know, mediocre grades and et cetera. And she's like, no, 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 no. It's not like that. It's, uh, it's all about, you know, you need a different path. Like you need to come into, all you need to do to get into, into HBS was to, was to be an application that stood out from everybody else. And that usually comes through in the essays and in your life story. And I think you have a really interesting life story. And I can help you with the essay. And I was like, seriously? And she's like, yeah. And 
she literally handed me this. Um, it was, I don't know, like a thousand essays that had gotten people into Harvard that she had compiled from her own sort of like, you know, journey and mentorship. And she handed it to me and she's like, we're going to start writing right now. You're going to apply. I'm going to review your application and I'm going to review every word of your essays that you write until we get it right. And she did it. And like, I, she, I, I very literally, she got me in. And it was like incredible, like that, that somebody like a stranger just takes, you know, takes you into account. Um, I mean, I found out through this journey that we had a lot in common. She, you know, she was second generation immigrants uh, from, from a, a Chinese family. And, you know, she deeply cared about, you know, how, how we showed up, immigrants showed up in this country and that, and that we were the future. So she invested in me. And, and all she asked in return is that I do the same for others. And that was it. That was sort of like the short of it. And it, it, it's, it's sort of like my, my uh, you know, I get emotional talking about it because like it was such a, I, nobody has ever done anything like that for me of like just grabbing my hand and saying, I'm just going to walk you through this opportunity and get you in. And, and, and she did it. And then, you know, after that, I helped a few others sort of like do the same thing. I, you know, I volunteer in the uh, near um, uh, tutoring program and I, I got a kid into Michigan, to the University of Michigan. Like I tried to like, you know, pay back. But that was that was a seminal moment for me. That completely changed my life because then she got me to Harvard and then after that, I went to Amazon, et cetera. But that yeah. was. That is amazing. And especially with no, she knows you're leaving Citigroup, probably right. not going to come back. Right. But right. then shows to, I can imagine just like how that changes your perception of goodness to some, like, like you might already think people are good, but then something like that happens. And it also shows you just how a little bit goes a long way, you know, right. and that was not a little bit. It doesn't sound like it was a little bit. It sounds like it was a like invested work. Oh yeah. It was, I think I wrote, there's three essays. I wrote every single essay at least 20 times. Yeah. Right. Wow. And because you only have 300 words per essay and like every word had to like boom. And then the next one is boom. And then it's just like, yeah. So for, for a non-native English speaker, that was a lot of work and she just powered through it. So every go, day I would like, it's, it's funny every, every day for like three months, I would come home with three red mark sheets. That was my essay printed every with her day. Red all over it. And then every do it again. day. Look, this is what for anyone who's aspiring to be a leader this, that is leaders. Like that is the definition where you're investing in someone, you know, and that Absolutely. is an investment. You know, you will never forget that. If that woman called you, you would run through a wall for her. Oh yeah. For, of you course. know, yeah. or said, I need this from you or whatever it is. And I think too often in, in leadership, we, you know, we, we make it about pipeline or we make it about something that's not a real true investment. She marked it up every day. I mean, that's, that's wild. So you go to Harvard, you do very, very well there. You get involved in a few clubs there. Um, and what, what do you remember most about your time at Harvard? You know, that obviously was probably another, like you said, kind of at, at Penn, you started to surround yourself with this kind of group of people with where you were kind of aspiring to. Now you're kind of getting into those. You are a part of these groups, right? You are one of those people. Other people might want to be like too. Right. You know, what, what is, what does Harvard do for you? What do you remember most about those years, 2001, 2003? So my Harvard experience is, is very unique because 9-11 happened two months into my my tenure there yeah um so all of a sudden you go in and you're like very excited about all these different jobs that you could take the number one employer harvard is mckinsey number two is goldman sachs and you can go to any of them like they're hiring left and right and i'm and i'm you know and then going through it a lot of the 
you know, first of all, after 9-11, the economy sort of went through a, a, a period yeah. of, of rebalancing, if you would. And so you couldn't just walk into any job anymore. You have to prove yourself. The second of all is that you have to be very good. So usually what happens after business school for most people is that they take a job and they will leave that job within two to three years of taking it because That's whatever amazing. shine of the job goes away and then you find yourself and you go do it. I didn't have that luxury, which was actually good in my, in my view because I had to take a job for which I was good at and I could get some longevity out of it because the economy was not good. So what do I have going for me? You know, I'm, 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 I have a technical background and the internet is blowing up. Those are the only two things that are happening in my life that are important. Um, so, you know, I, I, I had to wean off all the obvious answers that comes out of MBAs. I couldn't do iBanking. I couldn't do consulting. That was straight off the table because I was neither passionate and there was not enough jobs in that area anyway because of 9-11. Did you do any rotations, summer rotations while you were there? I, I did. Programs. I did want a General Motors mostly because I had a niche of working in in hard in manufacturing in the U.S. It's an area that I knew I wasn't gonna, you know, do for a living long term. But I really wanted to like experience it. Um, it's a very similar story. My son did the same thing, which is funny how you know how not far the apple falls from the tree. And when my my son gets an internship for for his college years, and he said, "Dad, I got two offers. I got one from Oracle and one from a packing plant in the middle in the in the in the last remote." island the illusion island range in alaska oh wow and i'll be working at a fish processing plant there or i can work at oracle which one should i take and i'm like work at oracle that's the resume um and he's like dad i will never work in dilution islands in my life so i either do it now and experience it now or i will never do it and i was like that's a great point and i was thinking the same thing i took a job at gm because i will never work for an industrial manufacturing right. company and i you know might as well get it out of the way now i love that so then you graduate and you go to Amazon. And this is early Amazon. This is right? early this is Amazon. 03, 05. Now, do you move? Is this when you move to Yeah, I, to that's Seattle? when I moved to Seattle. Yep. Okay. That, well, that's got to be kind of a, another shock for you culturally, right? Like you've now been, you know, you, you've moved from Ecuador. You're in like this East Coast, super East Coast vibe. And then you go to Seattle to work for, for Amazon. Do you remember the interview process there at all? Do you remember it what was it was like? Brutal. Yeah, it was I the wonder. most brutal interview process I ever had in my life because every they can kick you out halfway through it. So you never know whether you're even going to have the next <laughs> You're interview. waiting for like, like them to like pull a rope and then Manny falls through the You're, you're <laughs> seriously like the floor. if there's two no's ahead of you, you're done. So like you're sitting there hoping that you get the next interview. And do and they then, go like this? Are they like holding their thumbs out and then they're like, <laughs> dump him. <laughs> but it's very much like that. Like you never know. So, and the funny thing is because they fly you out in batches, you may just sit there the entire afternoon with nothing to do if you didn't make it through. And then after that, um, I meet my boss, who is now the, uh, the, the, the CFO of Splunk, actually. And, oh, awesome. And, uh, and we, uh, you know, we, we did the, 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 the next interview by going for a run. So I have to wake up at like, you know, 6 a.m. and, you know, run and talk. So that was that was awesome and weird at the same time. Oh gosh, very. It's just like that. That just. I mean, it doesn't surprise. It feels like a very like Seattle at that time kind of like thing yeah. to do. So you're able to keep up running, and you get the job. And I get the uh, job. So now I, I take the job. I come to Seattle. Amazon pay very little. That is still the case. If they pay very little, they give you a lot of stock. The stock at Amazon was about sixty bucks a share, up from you know low thirties. Uh, I didn't, you know, it wasn't clear. So th this is what people, very few people remember back then. 
in, in 2003. Yeah. Amazon, the whole flywheel of Amazon was not working. They didn't have the most selection. Even no. Yet. They didn't have the lowest pricing. Walmart did. And they would, in, in some categories, they were behind, like, if you wanted to buy a piece of electronics, you always go to J&R Electronics in New York because they had everything. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? You don't or go to Amazon. Yeah, you're going to Best Buy, right? Like that's exactly. It. That's you go to Best option. Buy. Like, so nothing was working, and they were not stopping making bets. So they would, they would, you know, they would open new stores almost every other month. They open apparel. They open, you know, kitchen. And then at the same time, they started, you know, their Netflix competitor, um, and they started Amazon Prime. And I was there when they started AWS, and all that happened at the same time. This is the part like they're not fulfilling their vision that is in front of them, and they're starting with all these new visions all at the same time. That's, yeah, this is crazy. I could always consider AWS. Amazon a real MBA because of that. That is insane, dude. That is, uh, and what product? Because you know you're a product manager. Do you, what product were you working on? So I was I was on uh, on uh, something called us. So it was called the associates business, and the associates is the ability for us to drive traffic from third party websites that put Amazon links in it. So Associates was about between 10 and 20% of the total Amazon traffic. And Google comes out with AdWords. And all of a sudden, every piece of real estate in the web is a compete between us Associates who are paying you know, 20% of the revenue of our cut against Google, which is a bid up space. And you could get paid you know, three, four, six times more than Amazon. So we start seeing our Associates business go down. And I'm part of that group. And that's and you actually if you read that that book from Colin Breyer, um, working backwards, it, it actually lays out the best story of how AWS got started because that's when you know Associates is going to nothing, and we're trying to figure out how to save the business. And we started giving the Associates more and more tools to build better websites. So we give him the entirety of the Amazon catalog and to see what happens. And then we said, hey, what if we give you storage and compute? There was hosting at that time, but this was not just hosting. This was giving them tools to build their, their own right. stores. And that's how the entire, you know, AWS got started. It was a series of experiments on the back of this associate business that started this, this, this new. That's wild. Business. Like, well, we had extra space here and we need to make it sticky. Exactly. And now fast forward to today. Uh, and it's, you know, one of the behemoths in the space. Um, and so why were you referred to as, as, as funky cold? Like, what was it that you did that, got you the nickname of funky cold at this stage so i was so the the the, the person who was running associates and web services was andy jassy at the time and okay he, when i joined he was transitioning out from being business's uh shadow to running a business so he decided to take which is the interesting part and this is why i think andy is brilliant is that you know when you are a business's shadow your next job is your call you can run any business at amazon anything Right. You could have run the multi-billion book business or the up-and-coming, you know, video delivery rental business. He decides to take associates and web services, which is nothing. It's a tiny little idea, you know, with like very little people and like very little PL. And he decides to take that. So because the team is so small, he like meets with everybody. And he's such a gregarious guy. He's, you know, he's from New York. He's really into music. There's a rumor out there that you know he almost quit to become a musician. So he's really into music. So like when he meets me, he's like, this is Manny Medina. And, and he's like, oh, like the funky cold? Like yeah. the funky cold Medina? Yeah, that's right. And, and I'm like, <laughs> sure. And he's like, all right, you're funky cold for now. And that now, was That's it. an easy one. Now that, I, now that I put two into it, I kind of embarrassed myself that I didn't immediately put the two together. That's pretty so, obvious. Now. Yeah. So like, you know, and, and, you know, every time I walk by, he will make the, the, the rap sound like, ah, 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 ah. ah. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, uh, I gotcha. You know, it was it was such a small like you know I was on the same floor with Jeff, you know. So you like you know it was it was very easy to get to know each other at that time. So so then you go to Microsoft, all right, and you're at Microsoft for a while. Microsoft, I've seen this, you know, at least I, don't know, I had kind of my own like run before I did my own thing too. And so you're there for six years. And you're, it seems like a lot of these roles are more like business development manager. And so are you still kind of in the product game as you're doing this? Are you coding at all? I mean, like, or, or are you starting to kind of gravitate at this point in your career toward kind of the, the business side of it? And maybe just talking, you know, it's been a few minutes, just talking about your experience at Microsoft and, you know, again, like what it was like for you kind of growing up in that 05, 11. Because again, you're probably, you're Microsoft, you're, you're, you're the beast at this, and then, like you said, then you got Google coming up, and then you've got all these other people starting to, you know, kind of come and and do interesting things. And so, I have to imagine that was a pretty interesting time to be at Microsoft. It was because um, there's two things that were happening at Microsoft at, at, at that time. Um, so, first of all, I, I, I Amazon was so intense that I decided I needed to take a break, so I went to work for Microsoft, where you know it's a, it's a, it's a slightly better pace of work. Um, and I also leverage more my, you know, in business development, you get to, you get to do this. I was working on most of the distribution deals. So we had a couple of assets that were big at Amazon, Microsoft, um, that were um, uh, part of the MSN category. So they had MSN Messenger, um, uh, 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 MSN Mail. Yeah. And I forget yeah. We, yeah. Back in the day, that was a thing, right? You had Yahoo Mail, you have AOL Mail, and you have MSN. Hotmail. Well, Hot Hotmail right? first. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Hotmail. Yeah. That was an acquisition. So, you know, we were trying to get these properties out into this, you know, new world of mobile phones. And, and the only way you can do that back in before the iPhone showed up is to get distribution deals with operators. And that was super important to us because then we can bring those people into the rest of the properties and then put them through search, which was also, a, a you know, something we had to win, right? Bing had to win search. So we started doing all this. And then, <laughs> and then in the meantime, Facebook shows up out of nowhere, you know, with a social network that goes from zero to like a million mm-hmm. in like no time. And puts out like all the other social networks. So we had a social network that that just you know didn't build. And then Messenger, um, you know, Facebook comes up with its own Facebook Messenger, you know, disseminates you know, email, uh, MSN Messenger. Um, the the other thing that happened was that uh, mail was given away for free by Google with unlimited space, and that just destroyed everything else out there. It was a, kind of like a nuclear moment. All right, so now you have two products that just got put out to pasture, you know, almost overnight. And, and I was like, all right, what's next? You know, my, I, I took a job at Windows phone trying to figure out like, you know, mobile is going to be. I was going to say, were you at Windows phone? So the- that, that I, I migrated from doing distribution deals for, you know, for MSN properties to doing distribution deals for Windows phones. So to where I go to operators and say, Hey, you know, how do we put together a deal? So you buy X many million units. Um, you know, from, from the OEMs, right? Because the OEMs are the ones who buy the software, but I in- incentivize the operators to buy the phone. So I'm doing all these deals and I'm fighting with BlackBerry and I'm, here I am thinking that BlackBerry is my main competitor and the iPhone comes out and it changes everything, <laughs> right. like overnight. Right. And, and sort of like, you know, big huddle, big reorg, you know, buy Nokia, this is before Nokia got bought, but like, you know, big, big everything. And, and, and I just, I, that's when I realized that I can be, this, I am sort of at the height of my career and I cannot be subject to everybody else's bad decisions. Yeah. Microsoft yeah. was very confused at that time. Very confused. Nobody yeah. You were there during Zune too, right? Wasn't, didn't Zune come out? 
that during, Zoom, Zoom came out. And then and, the Windows. I mean, and coming out is a strong word. I think Zoom sort of like... <laughs> it launched. Put his I head mean, out. <laughs> yes. they, sold, they sold some units. Um, so, okay, so you're at Microsoft. And then, and this is when, this is, you know, 10 years ago now, right? You leave. Um, and were you, were you at Group... Is it, was, when you went to Techstars, was that with Group Talent? Or is that before? Yeah, so at Techstars, we... Um, I, I got into Texas with my co-founder, Andrew Kinzer, who ended up running product for... Group Were you Talent. still at Microsoft, Manny, then? Or was this... No, 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 I quit. Okay. I quit Microsoft. I go to Texas. Yeah. Okay, got it. So you're like, I've had enough. Um, yeah. I'm just going to go do my own thing. This is why, right. like, I, I'm not, like, people ask me my entrepreneurship journey, and it's that I don't have a journey of entrepreneurship. I just, I just you know, I, when I quit Microsoft, I didn't have an idea. So I, yeah. I just quit. Yeah. And, and then decided to, you know, go for the best. Yeah. And... And I, I, you know, I, I came up with, um, I met my co-founder. We did a pitch to get us into Texas. Um, and, and we, the moment we got into Texas, we pivoted. Like we had a company, the company was a dumb idea. We pivoted. Um, <laughs> and, and at that point I meet, uh, Andrew. So Andrew and I meet Gordon and Wes, my other two co-founders, and they had built group talent into sort of like a website, a service for hiring teams. And that thought, I, you know, I figured if I point myself to a large enough problem and I got good enough people that good things will come out of it. And it didn't quite work that way. It, the recruiting is an incredibly hard business and we just didn't have the knack for it. And, you know, I, I think you heard about the pivot story. You know, we were running out of cash and we decided to sell our way out of the problem and we build a workflow that is now outreach. Well, let's talk about that though. All right. Why don't we talk a little bit about like that moment for you? So you're, you're doing that. And for a lot of people who haven't maybe heard the story. So, and you're doing that for a while. It's three years plus, right? I mean, yeah. you're invested. It's not quite getting that kind of trajectory. Um, and then, and then you start to build this kind of workflow tool. When do you realize like, Oh, like, well, that, that might be, there might be something here. So, um, what happened was that we, we, we were running out of cash and we were, we needed to sell more. And, and because we're a marketplace, we need to sell more both to the to recruiters who are hiring and to talent who is coming in. So we had two sales problems. So, you know, our sales problem sort of compounded, if you would. So we sat down and we decomposed, you know, what will get us a meeting? We figured that if we get meetings, we could convert them to a problem. And to get the meeting, we figured that there would be two core aspects of it. One was a workflow to follow up. <laughs> right. Makes sense. And the, and the second one was to personalize at scale. So we so the workflow to follow up is actually what became outreach. But what didn't become outreach, and it's an idea that got shelved, is this personalization at scale. So what we did is we built um, a workflow for a writer. Imagine that you are um, a, an English major. You're, you're trying to get your first book out or you're trying to break it into the comedy, you know, into the comedy space. But you don't have a job now and you need to make money. We have we had a, a service in which you can come in into this um, into this website and you will get two screens two screens one that has a bunch of data about a person right so there will be like Google results about Jake Dunlap on the left and an email um, header in the first line of an email personalization line um, that you have to write as a writer so you have to go research Jake you have you know whatever time and then you come in yeah. and write the subject of the email and then you write the next line and then it will get aggregated with our value proposition and that will go out to jake and then you see what i mean so that email we will pay about 25 to 50 cents per email if you're good at this you will make about you know 10 to 15 dollars an hour just sitting at home writing these emails that emails so we we launch this whole thing it's a it's a bit of a nightmare to manage but we got good at it 
those emails would generate 40% reply rates on, on like hard cold emails on both sides, on the, on the, um, on the, on the candidate side and on the employer side. Mind you, these are, you know, email, the, not only the emails are cold, but we have to generate meetings. So the emails also had positive call response. to action. Yeah, exactly. It had a call to action and the positive responses were positive. So we're like, we step into this gold mine of like, now we're swimming in meetings because every single one of these emails is generating a ton of meetings. So now we got the meetings, but they didn't have the manpower and the capacity to go close those meetings. And that's when I sort of tried to do the first quick pivot, which is, all right, let me go sell meetings. So I became, a, so I tried to position ourselves as a meeting generator for recruiters. So I went out to all the agency recruiters who have this massive contracts and I tried to sell the meetings. And, and I'm like, you know, they get paid by placement, right? So they're going to, you're going to pay me for this. And they found it too weird. You know, I talked to all the cats out there that, you know, and none of them will buy. So then I go to sell the meetings to, to recruiters at large companies that are growing fast, like AppDynamics and Cloudera. Those were my you know, first two customers. And they were like, you know, it's too weird. I'll buy the engine, but I will not buy the service. You know, right. If you give me the engine, I'll run my own. I run my own meeting. They should have bought the service, Manny. If I'm, you know, I like, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm like, I'm getting ready to recreate this service right now. Like, I'm buying the they remnants the of whatever like, exists. Like, you know, it's kind of funny because, like, I, I pitch this idea so many times and nobody has taken me up on it. It still works. Like, you can still create a very light workflow for so for like massive personalization. There is, there is in the order of like three to five million, you know, um, liberal arts majors out there without a job right now. I would love to sit down and write personalized emails for you. I'm so into this idea. So, so Manny, I know we're running up against time, and I know that I know that you we've got to we've got to wrap up here. Um, and we can't obviously we can't go through the whole history of outreach and where it where it is today. Um, I am just it's it's pretty wild, man. I, I feel like I've known you since the beginning. I think we were we were a power user back back in the day in like early 2015. That's right. Um, and and that's where the whole thing started. <laughs> 25 seats. We had 25 seats from doing outsourced legion. And I realized I'm like, yuck, I do not, I do not, I don't want to be complaining or getting into it with people why we didn't set, you know, 50 meetings instead of 45. Right. Um, but I've always been a big believer in you in this category. So what I want to do to wrap up is maybe talk about what's next for you. And obviously outreach has got a long ways to go. So it's not necessarily about what's the next move, but when it comes to your world, maybe what are some of the things you're most excited for, for both yourself, you know, personally, professionally, as you look forward over the next few years, like what are you most excited about when it comes to kind of your, your company and where you're at as a, as a person too? Yeah. I I like to frame what I'm about to tell you in the the following, which is sort of like summarizes my entrepreneur journey or like the journey of building outreach is that, you know, when you start this journey, you you become motivated by either fear or greed. You know, fear of failing or greed of the of all the greatness that you're about to to get. Um, and we were motivated a lot by fear, to be frank, because we were failing, and uh, you know, our reach group talent was running out of steam, and 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 none of us wanted to go back and, and get a normal job. So fear was a big motivator for us. And then all of a sudden, I remember that we had this this one incident with um, with one of our earliest customers. Uh, I think it was Greenhouse, the, the recruiting company in New York, Yeah, where they, they bought the tool very early and the tool was very rough. It was very powerful, but they didn't have any, 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 any rail, any, any guardrails. And this one day, you know, they, they, they did something or we did something that deleted a bunch of records and the team couldn't sell. So we got a call from the, from the manager, Aaron, that morning. And he's like, you know, our reach is down. My team can't sell. I'm sending everyone out to lunch. It's 11 o'clock. I'm sending my entire team to lunch. You have two hours to fix a problem. 
So in an entrepreneurship journey, when that happens, so you two things happen. The first is, oh shit, you know, all hands on deck, we have a fire. This customer is going to leave or screwed. What are we going to do? But the next immediate thought is, oh my God, we're mission critical. And right. that's when product market fit happens. You see what I mean? Product market fit is not, it's, it's a feeling. And it only happens when somebody calls you and says like, if this goes down, I'm going to kill you. And that's when it happened to us. It's like, we went down and somebody can do something very critical to the organization. And that's when our shift happened from being motivated by fear to being motivated by duty. Now we're motivated by the duty of having to deliver sales to people. You see what I mean? Like we don't have, yeah. like, you know, you become the category leader once you establish yourself. But once you become the leader, you have the expectation to deliver the category as a whole to everyone in out there. Like everybody expects from you of what's your next act. They already forgot about your last act. You already forgot about sequences. You know what I mean? People assume that you can buy the stuff from other people. They already forgot about triggers. Yeah. They already forgot about calendar. They already forgot about everything. So they expect the next thing. You see what I mean? So that's what really pulls me. Like, you know, entrepreneurship is great when you have something pulling you because you have to push it. It's too hard. So what really pulls me is, the, is this vision of delivering an entire customer engagement platform. Everything that delivers from the prospecting down into, you know, how you close deals, how you manage that interaction, and how do you get a, in a plan of success with your customer so that they continue to buy from you and you continue to develop that relationship. And having that whole interaction in one platform that allows you to get better over time is our, is our, is our, is our calling. You know what I mean? It's not even like my vision. It's what we call to do every day. And, yeah. and that makes me run out of bed and come to the office. And I can, I can, I can, uh, we have similar passions serving similar groups. So I can definitely appreciate that. And I think for everyone listening, um, you know, I've got, I was taking some notes here too. There's just a lot of really interesting kind of insights here. It's that concept of, you know, you're constantly iterating and you might not exactly know. I'm I'm sure even whenever you started it, you're not like, oh, and there's going to be a day where we have this thing called Kaya and Kaya, like it probably wasn't, but but the key is to your point, it's that if you're constantly staying ahead and and I'm sure maybe you know, your time at Microsoft, right, kind of taught you the importance of not being third to market or fifth right. or sixth to market, but instead, where's the ball going? Where's the puck moving? And, and I think in so many of ours, it, the safe decision at times appears to be to do what the other people as opposed to where's the ball moving. And, exactly. and that is actually the safer decision from time to time. And, and I think if I look at your, your kind of your career and your life, you've consistently done that. You said, I want to be, I, I know this is where I want to be. And then you have, and you've had kind of that right people at the right time, but when opportunity came, you took it. And yeah. I think that's, that's it. You didn't hold on to group talent so much and then you carried it to the grave, you know? And I think, <laughs> well, that's what happens with a lot of entrepreneurs, especially first time, you know, that was like kind of like your first baby. And I think a lot of times when it's someone's first baby, they, you know, they, they, they just, they, they keep trying to make that the thing versus being nimble and, and being agile and being, you know, excited about solving the problems. And, and I really enjoyed this, Manny. I, I think uh, our listeners will have enjoyed it too. They hopefully got to learn a little bit more about Funky Cold uh, and, and the, the life and times of. So, man, I just wanted to say a big thank you, Manny. Um, I feel like we need to do, I think, I think maybe like in six or 12 months, we'll do a part two where we'll just do like the outreach years, but I kind of like, I kind of like that we didn't, I kind of like that we got a chance to just sit and talk and I got a chance to get to know you better. And, uh, got a chance to, you know, I think for a lot of people out there to hear about your journey and, and get motivated and think about, you know, how they can make it happen and, and, and get it done too. So thank you, Manny. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. And we will see all of you next week on the Jake Dunlap Show. I appreciate you, Jake. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You're the man. Thanks, man. That was good. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to another extremely fun and interesting episode. I thought it was fun and interesting, so I hope you did too, of the Jake Dunlap Show. Uh, Really great just breaking down everything that makes people who they are, the success, the trials and errors, and I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and make sure more than anything to go over to jakedunlap.com. That's where you're going to stay up to date on all the latest guests, additional details, prep notes. We're going to be sharing everything on jakedunlap.com. So go ahead, go over there. You can subscribe there as well too. And we will see you next week on the Jake Dunlap Show.